Today's message is the introduction to our March series entitled Transformed, Real Gospel Stories. And before I go any further today, I want to give a shout out to my mom and dad. This coming Tuesday, they're going to be celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary. 60th. Wow. I was thinking earlier this morning, the incredible example you are to to me and to all my siblings and to our spouses and our children, your grandchildren and now great-grandchildren of love, of unconditional, unfailing love. A love that keeps no records of wrong, that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I've known them almost 55 years of their married life. <laughs> and they've had to endure various storms. But through the grace of God and the love of God in their hearts for him and for each other. There was no mountain that they could not take together. No raging river that they could not swim across together. I'm so grateful, so grateful for your example of faith, of family, of love. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Happy pre-anniversary. 60 years. Sorry, on your 50th, we, we sent them to Hawaii. And um, we're not sending them to Hawaii on their 60th, but. (laughs) Starting next Sunday through the rest of the month, you will hear three amazing gospel stories. And this sanctuary is filled with amazing gospel stories. You have a gospel story. You have a, a story of grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This sanctuary is filled with with amazing grace stories, gospel stories. I pray that these stories that you'll hear over the next three Sundays coming up will inspire your faith and infuse in you renewed hope in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A new zeal, passion, to tell everyone you come in contact with about this good news, good news of the gospel of of Jesus Christ and how it changed your life and how it fills you with hope and how it can change your life and fill you with hope as well. We have the message that the world is waiting for. We have the message. We have the message. We have the message. Today's main scripture text is the Apostle Paul's gospel transformation story. In our main scripture text, he's referred to as Saul because that's who he was before he was transformed. 
As we will see and hear in this series, the Christian faith is about transformation. Of lives being radically changed by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Of all the transformation stories in the Bible, my opinion, none is greater or more profound than the conversion of the man called Saul of Tarsus. He hated and murdered Christians. Look at Acts chapter 9, starting with verses 1 and 2. The book of Acts is written by Luke, the same um, Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. And in one sense, this is a continuation of Luke. It's a history book of the first century church, but it's more than a history book. What we read about the spirit of God and the power of the gospel in this history book called Acts happens today in the present. It's not just something of the past. It still happens today. Lives are still being transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like they were during the times that this book um, was, was being lived out in the history of the church. Father, I pray over these next few minutes through the power of your spirit, you would open our hearts, open our minds to the truth of your word, that you would be glorified in your preaching, in the preaching of your word, that you would be seen, that I would be unseen. I pray in Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit of God just to move in our hearts. That your kingdom would come, your will would be done in every single person's life here today as it's already written in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, of the way, the Christian faith, the term Christian wasn't introduced just yet. They were known as the way. They were Christ followers, the way. So that if he found anyone who were of the way following Christ, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Many had fled. They fled Jerusalem fearing for their lives, fearing for their safeties. They uprooted and, and brought their family as far away as they could from Jerusalem. Let's pause for just a moment. And Saul was so intent on persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. We'll pick up in verse 3 in, in just a moment. Saul sought authority from the high priest to go to Damascus to find Christians who had fled from Jerusalem to arrest them and bring them back to where they would more than likely be stoned to death. Saul, like his father was a strict Pharisee, and he had the best training available that day, being educated in Jerusalem under the, the most respected rabbi. The word rabbi means teacher of that time. And Saul thought he was doing God a service, a favor, by persecuting Christians, killing Christians. You can read about his intent and, and how he really was being deceived by the evil one, that thinking that he was doing God a, a great service. You can read about it in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. If you asked Saul why, he might have said something like this. 
Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you expect to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah, the anointed one of God? According to Old Testament law, anybody who hung on a tree is cursed. I can hear Saul saying, You can read it for yourself right in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Would God take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah? No, you've got to be foolish to even believe such a thing. His followers are preaching that Jesus is alive and doing miracles through them. But their power comes from Satan, not God. This is a dangerous religion. And I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. He was a defender of his Jewish faith, of the law. Despite Saul's great education, under the greatest teacher of that day, he was spiritually blind. Blind by the God of this age. And the Bible says the God of this age is Satan. And he still blinds people from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus really is. He still works that way. Blinding hearts and blinding minds. In fact, Paul says, unless the light of the gospel would shine in these blind hearts and minds. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll perish. And we know in scripture that God desires that none would perish. Not one person in this room would perish. Not one person living in the world today would perish. Throughout history would perish. That's not God's desire. That's not God's will. Jesus came to give life and to give life more abundantly, the scripture tells us. He stumbled over the cross. Saul of Tarsus, he he stumbled over the cross, and people today still stumble over the cross. The Bible says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18, and then 22 and 23, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to the Jews a stumbling block. The message of the cross was a stumbling block for Saul. Like many other rabbis, he believed that the Old Testament law had to be perfectly obeyed before Messiah could come. As far as he was concerned, these crazy Christians were preaching against the law. They were preaching against the temple and the traditions of the fathers of of Judaism. And this angered Paul, and you can read about his anger there in Acts chapter 6. And so, with the authority of the highest Jewish council behind him, hatred in his heart for all Christians and disdain for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Saul was granted the authority to go to Damascus to hunt down the disciples of Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem. Let's pick up. Paul's gospel transformation story in verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Let's pause here for just a moment. A goad was a long pole 
or stick with a sharp pointed piece of iron fastened to the end. I I thought about making one as a visual illustration and also to use it to poke some folks that tend to close their eyes on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Farmers used to go to prod a stubborn ox. Any stubborn oxes in the house here today? They would use this go to, to, to prod these stubborn ox to, to urge them to move, to steer the ox in the desired direction when plowing the fields. At times, the stubborn ox would kick back against the goad. And the more the stubborn ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into the flesh of its leg, causing more pain and, and driving the pointed the pointed end deeper into its flesh. And you can just imagine the excruciating pain the ox would experience by kicking against the goad. Oh, the pain that we experience because we're so stubborn. When Jesus rebuked Saul for kicking against the goads, he was telling the proud Pharisee that he was only hurting himself in resisting the truth and teaching of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He has come. And the more Saul resisted, the more he suffered. The harder he kicked, the deeper the goad drove into his flesh, hurting his pride. Church, here's, a, here's an application for us. Here are a few goads God uses in our own personal lives. He uses them in my life. The Bible. The Bible. Do you ever find yourself kicking against the truth? The goad. The Bible in your life. It invades areas that you haven't surrendered. And you find yourself kicking against the goad. Godly counsel. How many today you're angry with someone because God sent someone to you to to provide you and to give you godly counsel. To confront something sinful in your life. And you've kicked against the goad. You've kicked against the godly counsel that God brought to you the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How many of us are kicking against the goad of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said when, when, when the helper comes, he will convict of righteousness so we can see our, our, our need. We're unrighteous. And we're in need of the righteousness of Christ. He convicts of sin and of righteousness and of, of judgment. Are we, are we kicking against the goad of the Holy Spirit? Are we resisting? Sermons. Another goad. Adversity. And just to name a few, are you kicking against the goads? Are you resisting the Lord? Are you inflicting yourself with unnecessary pain and discomfort? Is your pride being damaged, deeply hurt and wounded because you're kicking against the goads that that God has brought into your life to, to speak his eternal truths? You might be transformed by his grace, his love. 
Let's continue reading our text, picking up at verse 6. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. After an encounter like that, I would fast and and pray. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. Straight and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind, to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. The grace of God, the grace of God reaches the worst of sinners. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The Christian way of life is not for the faint at heart. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who applies the blood of Christ, all that Jesus did. Heaven's righteousness to the sinful heart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. He followed the Lord in water baptism. He declared publicly his faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. How glorious. Then Saul spent some days, I love this verse, then Saul, Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. It's, it's one of my favorite verses in the whole story of, of, of Saul's transformation. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. I find that amazing. It wows me. The people he was coming to fight. The people he was coming to fight. To take forcefully. He now fellowships with. He was coming for these people. There were lots of synagogues in Damascus. Lots of synagogues in Damascus. And in the first century church, a lot of the believers who were, who were being saved, they, they were still worshiping in these synagogues. And Saul was granted authority by the high priest to to go and travel to Damascus and to enter these synagogues and to find the Jewish Christians who had fled Jerusalem. 
to arrest them, to bring them back. Many of them most likely would not even made it back to Jerusalem alive. Many believers died at the hands of Paul, Saul. But here we see Saul fellowshipping with the disciples that he came to fight. Only God can do that. What an amazing gospel transformation story. A devout Jew. He had always fought for the importance of Jewish law. And he was committed to punish anyone who disagreed even to the point of death. But now he had a different battle. He was a soldier of grace, warring not, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual rulers and authorities set up against the Lord Jesus Christ. He was now a different kind of soldier whose weapons were preaching in prayer, not certificates of arrest and death by stoning. The hand that wrote out execution papers for Christians after being saved, transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, would write some of the most precious words in the Bible. Thirteen letters were written from a heart of love to churches that, that he founded or had been involved in ministry with. The man who once demanded the blood of Christians would come to desire that the blood of Christ be applied to every human heart transformation story come on the man who traveled everywhere to hunt down Christians would now travel to the ends of the earth to tell people about Jesus Christ what a picture of gospel transformation we see a real life example of God completely transforming the heart of a man headed in the wrong direction and perhaps we know someone just like Saul Or perhaps you are someone just like Saul. On a road paved with with hatred. Paved with rejection. Paved paved with, with rebellion and pain and destruction. I want you to know here today, if you hear nothing else, the rest of this message, please hear this. Jesus loves you. He died for you. You can share in his resurrection life. You don't have to wait for Easter. Saul was was a motivated man, zealous and in pursuit of all the wrong things, even when he thought he was helping. He wasn't. God sees the heart. He he, he knows us. He saw Saul and he took all the brokenness and self-righteousness, misguided zeal, and stepped into his life and transformed him into an instrument of his glorious love. Think of the least likely to accept Christ and know that nobody is ever beyond God's reach. I think of Billy Graham who was honored this past week. A couple years ago, my wife and I were at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. The Cove is the Billy Graham Retreat Center. It's a wonderful place to relax and and, and be refreshed in the Lord. One night as we were eating dinner in their dining room, an elderly man approached us. He approached our table and he asked if he could join us and we said, please do. And we all had name tags on. His said, Ed Graham. And my wife asked, are you related to Billy? Just like that, are you related to Billy? Not Mr. Graham, Billy. And and that's okay. 
he said to us, actually, yes. I'm his cousin. His father was Billy's brother. Both families grew up on the dairy farm together. We spent a little over an hour. It was just the three of us at this big table. He was a retired pastor, pastored the same church for 40-something, close to 47 years, I believe. He comes to the cove a couple times a week and just walks around, wants to meet people and pray for people. And He really came to not just eat a meal with us, but he wanted to get to know us. But he wanted to know if there was anything specific that he could pray for because he wanted to spend some time praying for us. Incredible. He shared several stories growing up on the farm with Billy, with Billy Graham. And I remember him telling us, when you see how God has used my cousin, growing up, you would have thought Billy would be the last or the least likely of all the family members to be used in such a a great way. But one day, church, Jesus Christ stepped into Billy's life and the rest is history. And I'm sure so many Christians, Saul was the least to so many Christians. Saul was the least likely to accept Christ and to be used by the Lord in the way that he was. Saul went from breathing threats of murder in Acts chapter 9, our main scripture text, verse 1, to proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God in verse 20 of our text. In fact, verse 20 says, immediately he, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. The transformation is amazing. Remember, Saul was on his way to Damascus to look for Jews who became Christ followers. He had authority to go into the synagogues and arrest him. Here in verse 20, he's preaching Christ in the synagogues. Verse 21 says, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose? He didn't have a good reputation. So that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. The phrase, they all were, then all who heard were amazed. They were like, this is, this is, you know, that the man who persecuted and murdered hundreds of Christians. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. They couldn't believe with their eyes what they were seeing. Saul's transformation was visibly evident. The Bible says in Matthew 3, 8, therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. That's a word for us today. True repentance demands more than regret over our sin. It requires a change of life, a transformed life. Evidence for all to see. The day Jesus stepped into Saul's life, he was radically changed from persecutor to preacher. All who heard him preach were amazed. The evidence was undeniable. His name changes from Saul, the persecutor, to Paul, the preacher, the apostle. In the book of Romans, turn, if you will, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. The book of Romans is one of the 13 New Testament books written by Paul. And he writes in in Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. 
The word translated ashamed also means offended. There was a time when Paul was deeply offended by the gospel, the cross, but no more. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, I shared it moments ago, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There was a day when the cross offended Paul. Not today. He says to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now let's just pause here for a moment and ask ourselves this question. How is the gospel offensive? Well, number one, it says to the world, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Pat Medeiros is a sinner. Have you ever came up to someone and and said, sir, hi, I'm Pat. What's your name? Ken. Ken. You're a sinner. (laughs) How do you think that conversation's going? It's going south quickly. He would be deeply offended. But that's what the cross speaks. That's what the cross speaks. Every time you see the cross, that's what the cross speaks. The cross has a personal message for every eye that lays hold of the cross. It's a speaking cross. It speaks to us. You're a sinner. The cross speaks to you about your sin. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verse 32. Church, we don't like to talk about it. There's sharp edges to the gospel. There are sharp edges to this gospel. There is sin. Your sin, my sin. There's blood. These people are crazy. They're singing today about blood. How it hasn't lost its power. They're nuts. They're crazy. They're wackos. I got to get out of this place. There are sharp edges to this gospel. There is sin. Your sin. Not not your neighbor's sin, but your sin. The cross speaks about you, about your sin, about my sin. There's blood, there's death, there's wrath, there's a holy anger. You see, church, to remove the offense, we would remove the substance, the cross. In fear of offending people, we watered down the gospel, the message of the cross, where it's become not the message from heaven, but the message from man on earth has no saving power none whatsoever Paul says I'm not ashamed I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that word ashamed in the Greek language can be translated also offended Paul saying I'm not offended I used to be when I was Saul I was offended but I'm not offended anymore because the risen Christ stepped into my life oh my goodness what a wow Next, the gospel is really insulting. It offends the popular belief in the innate goodness of of humanity. The 
gospel tells us trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough. It tells us that no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving. Number three, a third reason. The second reason people are offended is that the gospel really insults. It offends the proper belief in the innate goodness of humanity. You and I cannot be good enough to, to get into the right um, graces of Almighty God. The third reason it's offensive is the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying, and that following him, following Jesus means to suffer and serve with him. Did you hear that, church? That's offensive. It flies in the face of this prosperity gospel. What do you mean? Following him means to, to suffer and serve with him. That's a whole another sermon series. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. When God saves us, he calls us not to a safe and comfortable life, but an unsafe and very uncomfortable life filled with Incredible rewards waiting for us in glory. No amens. That's the truth. The Lord told Ananias in Acts 9.16, For I will show him, I will show him, Saul, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Yet, as the, the Lord is showing Saul all that he's going to suffer for his name's sake. Yet, Paul is not ashamed. He's not offended. No, he's not ashamed. He's not offended. You know what he is? He's transformed. He's transformed. He encountered the one who hung on the cross, the risen one. He stepped into his life. It's incredible, church. He's not ashamed. First, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, the scripture tells us in Romans 1.16. Paul is saying that the gospel message is is the power of God in verbal form. It's not a concept or a philosophy. It It doesn't say it brings power, but that it is the power of God. Big difference. The Greek word translated power is dunamis, from which we get the English words dynamic and dynamo and dynamite. You get the, the, the awesome picture of this word. When the gospel is shared, explained, or reflected upon, God's power to save is released. It's the power of God. It doesn't bring the power of God. It is the power of God. And when it's spoken, when it's shared, when it's it's meditated upon, reflected upon, God's power to save is released. 
Why aren't we sharing the good news? Why aren't we sharing this gospel? It's the power of God. Why are we hiding this good news? Because when we share, a child can share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a Bible scholar and understand Hebrew and Greek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The youngest of the youngest, the littlest can share this wonderful, marvelous truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when, and when the gospel is shared. Jesus died for you. He was buried and rose again. The power of God is released. The power of God has just been spoken. It's not how clever we are in our preaching. It's not all the aids that we use on the platform and and just how church is being done today. It's it's shallow. It's not where the power of God is. But we want to make sure all that works perfectly. I wish we'd have that same commitment to make sure that people every day every week that we come in contact with, hears the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Not what kind of coffee we serve, or what songs we've sung, or what the preacher was wearing. Come on, church. Let's move out of this shallow place. Let's get real with Jesus. Someone say amen. Amen. Or fire the preacher. Go ahead. (laughs) There's a world out there that needs the gospel. I have job security. Amen. That's your job too, by the way. That's your job too. Not just mine. It's yours too. Come on, church. Someone say amen. When the gospel is shared, explained, or reflected upon, God's power to save is released. The gospel is powerful because it does what no other power on earth can do. No president, no king, no ambassador, world ambassador. Only the gospel can save us, reconcile us to God, and guarantee us a place in in the kingdom of God forever. The gospel has power to forgive sins. It affects our past. There's a theological term called justification. Justification. Just as if I've never sinned. The gospel has the power to impart new life. It affects our present. There's a theological term. It's called sanctification. It's that process that we're all in right now. We are becoming more and more like Jesus every day as we trust in him, as we follow him and rely on the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The gospel has the power to admit into heaven. It affects our future. There's a, there's a theological word for this. It's called glorification. How many of you have an achy body right now? You're physically aching. You're physically sick. You're tired. You're worn out. Your body, your physical body, it's broken. It's breaking down. Well, don't be surprised. 
Paul talks about this in, in, in his second letter to the Corinthians. But the gospel, I have good news, the gospel has the power to admit into heaven. It affects our future. It's called glorification. One day, we're going to trade in this used automobile for a brand new, shiny, spanking, perfect automobile. A house not built with human hands. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more death. Why? Because heaven's filled with a bunch of glorified followers of Jesus Christ. Church, when I think about these truths, justification, sanctification, glorification, I like to say it like this. Just since the Holy Spirit dropped it in my heart, I think it was Friday we were praying. Joe was praying um, in the morning staff prayer. And as he was praying, this was jumped, dropped into my heart. I shared it with the team. Everybody looked at me. I said, justification plus sanctification plus glorification equals Complete transformation. Isn't that glorious, church? That will preach. That will preach. It's all the working of the Holy Spirit in redeeming fallen humanity. I'm so grateful for God the Father who sent his Son. And Jesus, who fulfilled the Father's will and laid down his life for our sin. And the Holy Spirit, who takes what Jesus did on the cross and he applies he applies his righteousness to our unrighteousness and he raises us up the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave he raises us up in newness of life God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit the three in one the three in one however you want to look at it they're all involved in, in, in redeeming fallen humanity amen justifying sanctifying glorifying transforming our lives someone say amen 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 there's hope for Greece New York there's hope for Rochester New York there's hope for Washington DC there's hope for North Korea church there's hope for North Korea have you been praying have you been praying for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached in North Korea for the power of God to be released because the gospel is the power of God or have you been praying oh God help him not to hit that nuke button we don't want to be exposed to nuclear power. Or are we praying, God, send a move of your spirit. Send missionaries to North Korea to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's power is greater than all the nuclear power in the world. Do you believe it, church? I believe this stuff. Can you tell? The gospel lifts people up. The gospel transforms and changes people from the inside out. All that is required, all that is required to know this salvation personally is faith, belief. Paul says it's offered to everyone who believes. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. 
Faith is the connection to the power of the gospel, to the power of God. Notice that Paul says, for everyone who believes, the gospel has no boundaries. He he says it's to everyone. It came to the Jew first through Jesus, but it's for the Gentile as well. Everyone and anyone. In verse 17, Paul reveals the second reason why he's not ashamed, why he's not offended. It is what makes the gospel so powerful, which gives it this life-transforming quality. Let's read, verse, let's read verse 17, Romans 1. For in it, for in it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Game changer right there. Game changer. The word revealed shows that no one would ever know of the righteousness from God. No one would find it or, or guess it unless God showed it through the gospel. The word righteousness is a legal term taken from the courtrooms of ancient Rome. It means to declare not guilty and to declare innocent of all charges. Can you imagine? I was trying to think about this earlier this week, how Paul must have felt when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel and how this word declared him not guilty, innocent of all charges. Paul describes himself later as the chiefest of of sinners. You know, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy, the devil, the Bible says he's the accuser. I'm sure he was whispering and some days he was shouting, you're a loser. Look at all those horrible things. How many Christians you killed. You think God loves you. You think he's, he's pleased with what you're doing in his name. You're deceiving yourself. You don't think that was happening? Oh, but when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, what Paul, Paul must have felt. Church, do we realize our unrighteousness? Maybe we haven't murdered anybody, but our sin in the presence of a holy God is just as bad. We were just as in need of the righteousness of God that Saul of Tarsus was. But I'm afraid we don't understand that. And only the Holy Spirit of God, as you open your heart to him, can make that known and real in the deepest parts of your heart and life and mind. Mm. That's why we don't live fully for him and give ourselves total abandonment to him. Because we live in a land of privilege. A land of right. Mm -hmm. Mm, boy this word righteousness means to have a right standing in God's eyes here is where the power of the gospel is, is clearly seen it provides for us what we could never provide for ourselves on our own merits we all stand condemned before the almighty God righteousness is what we need but do not have God, knowing that we could never be righteous on our own, has provided a righteousness which comes down from heaven above. It's not earned or deserved, but it is given to us by God as a gift. Amen? The righteousness from God revealed in the gospel is received only by faith. Paul writes this, Romans 1.17. It is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That last part, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet. 
Everyone who is saved is saved by the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. Not in a church, not in a church denomination. Faith is not only the starting point of your salvation, church. It's the staying power of your Christian walk. In the Old Testament, righteousness was by works, which made it unattainable. No one could obey God's holy law and meet his righteous demands. In fact, Psalms 14.3 says, There is none who does good. No, not one. This Old Testament scripture is quoted in the New Testament book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. You see, church, the gospel message, God does not ask you to behave to be saved. But to believe. But to believe. And then our behavior follows our belief. Because now our behavior is shaped by what we believe and who we believe in. And we become more and more like Jesus on that road of sanctification once we've been justified just as if we've never sinned. Romans 10, 9, and 10 say, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is faith in Christ that saves the sinner, that saves you, that saves me. You do not gain God's righteousness by works. Real life transformation happens when we confess and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You see, confession has the idea of a agreeing with him how many agree with God when you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus you agree with what God said about Jesus Christ and with what Jesus said about himself it means that you agree and acknowledge that Jesus is God this is crucial this is huge Rochester That he is the promised Messiah, Savior, and that his work on the cross is the only way of salvation for humanity. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, when you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, it is more than intellectual agreement about the cross and the resurrection. You go a step further in your heart. You trust him. You trust him. You leave the whole matter of your salvation with him and him alone. His finished work. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. And you do this in confidence of who he is. Who he is. Leaning All your weight on him. All your weight on him. 100% of your weight on him and his finished work on the cross. You can't save yourself. This is the faith that saves the soul. It's where real life transformation begins. And to prove his point, Paul, he shares this Old Testament passage. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Faith alone, church, not by works of the law. Faith alone, not by Judaism, not by Pentecostalism, not by Catholicism, nor any other ism. 
Faith alone, not baptism. Faith alone, not sacraments. Faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Come on, church. Amen. I close with 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. Saul had a new focus. Life was no longer about Saul, about self, but all about his Savior. Saul went from being an attacker of Christ to being an advocate of Christ. I want to close by drawing our attention back to Saul kicking against the goads. I apologize for going a tad bit long, but I truly believe that the Spirit of God is speaking to us, not this man. The fact that Jesus points this out to Saul reveals to us that the Holy Spirit had been working on Saul's heart even before the Damascus Road encounter. He says, you've been kicking against the goats. He'd already been. We look at this transformation story and we think, wow, he was presented and, and instantaneously transformed. But there's an there's a implying here reveals to us that the Holy Spirit had been working on Saul's heart even before the Damascus Road encounter. But Saul was resisting. Stubborn like an ox. Are you like Saul? Are you resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Are you stubborn like an ox? Are you rebelling against the Lord? Is he poking you with the pointed word of God? But you're being stubborn? You're fighting his prodding. You're kicking against the goats. Understand, it's only hurting you more deeply and those around you. I want to encourage you to surrender by faith to Jesus Christ. Allow Jesus to step into your life. And when he does, you will personally experience the power of God and have a gospel transformation story that will blow your socks right off your feet. An amazing story of grace that will not only change you from the inside out, but all who believe the testimony of the risen Christ that is evident in your life. Would you join me standing?